right, well, tonight we are going to be in Psalm 78. And we are going to be looking at the second half of Psalm 78, verses 32 through the end of at verse 72. <clears throat> Psalm 78, verses 32 to 72, we'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed the signs, his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. He turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which, which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and fruit of the labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like a sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them to, in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain where his, which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God. It did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted in like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, 
and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he had founded forever. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Neil Postman, in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, notes how ancient cultures relied on oral argument primarily to discover and reveal truth. If there was a case to be argued publicly, it would involve often the recitation of wisdom sayings or scriptures in order to arrive at the correct conclusion. Now, the problem with exclusively oral culture is that spoken words are temporary. Written words are more permanent. The spoken word disappears in a moment while the printed word endures. And this speaks to at least one of the reasons why God had his oracles written down for us. He wanted permanence for his people. For his word. But what is the benefit of permanence? Well, in this case, it is that the inspired word of God would endure from generation to generation until it comes even to us. Now, last week we looked at the author's intentions in this psalm, which were to educate his audience and their children and their descendants so that we would not forget God, so that we would not test God, and ultimately, that we and our descendants would learn to place our hope in God and obey him. As we look at the second half of this song, we continue our education, learning at least two things. First, that God's relationship with his people is complex. And second, we learn of God's persevering love for his people. We'll look at each one tonight. First, we see... the complex relationship God has with his people in verses 32 to 55. And the complexity of this relationship comes from two clear realities that come out in this uh, recital, recital of Israel's history, which is the unfaithfulness of God's people uh, to the covenant, to God, to his commands. uh, And conversely, covenant faithfulness of the Lord. So we're going to start with a a brief survey of the biblical record from what the psalmist gives us in verses 32 to 55. There's a lot of ground that the psalmist covers here, so we need to see if we can grasp just the breadth of, of what he covers here. And so he begins with the hard-heartedness of Israel who sinned against God uh, in, in spite of all his wonders and even his discipline of them. And there's this pattern that developed. Israel would sin against God egregiously and then he would bring suffering upon them. 
And in their pain, they would repent and cry out to God uh, and ask for forgiveness. And God would respond to that call and deliver them from the suffering or from the oppressor. Uh, But as soon as that suffering ended and the prosperity returned, the people would immediately go back to what they were doing and usually get worse. And they would forget the Lord and go into deeper idolatry and round and round they went. The people of God did exactly what the psalmist warned us about earlier. They tested God and they forgot God and his wondrous deeds. And he takes us back to Egypt to show us how scandalous it is to forget the Lord. The ten plagues that he dropped upon Egypt. And beginning in verse 43, rivers of blood, swarms of flies and frogs, locusts, hail, the freezing frost, lightning for their cattle, and death for their sons. And he traces it all back to the, uh, to the people uh, that he calls from the tents of Ham, which takes you all the way back to Genesis 9. After the flood, one of Noah's sons from whom Egypt is descended and whom Noah cursed. From Egypt, he brought them through the wilderness like a shepherd, guides a flock of sheep, and then he brought them into the promised land. He even drove out the the nations before them and settled them in that wonderful place. The land is said flowing with milk and honey. Well, this is a, so this is a quick survey of the events and what God did for his people. And so, and as we go through that biblical record, we find that it's not simply a survey of a, a history, but it is a survey of faithfulness and a survey of unfaithfulness. And, and so these two remarkable features stand out uh, and they just kind of scream at you as you read it. Uh, and so, and, and now the unfaithfulness of Israel wasn't, um, isn't only defined by the fact that they would regularly and blatantly violate the law of God, which they knew. It was also that their repentance was shallow and momentary. It only lasted as long as the pain of discipline. They never learned. They never truly repented. Verses 34 to 37 describes it well. I mean, it's striking language where he says, when he killed them, they sought him. It's powerful words. They repented and they sought God earnestly. They remembered the truth. God is the rock of changeless stability for his people. The most high God is the unchanging savior. But their repentance was not sincere. As the psalmist says in verse 36, they flattered God. They lied. Their heart was not with God. When things were bad, when things were hard, they remembered him. But as soon as things were good, they forgot him. Against this picture, we are presented with God's unflinching faithfulness. And while we may be taken aback um, as modern people by God's discipline from earlier, and even in this text, what stands out to the psalmist, at least, in what he's careful to highlight is God's compassion. Verses 38 and 39. That word compassion, when you go look it up, it's a word that that describes um, a parent's tenderness towards their child. 
And the scriptures often describe God's heart like a mother nursing a baby or a mother bird covering her babies. God's compassion brought atonement for the sins of his people again and again. In the wilderness, that was, that was worked through Moses. In Judges, it was, came through deliverers that he would raise up. And under the United Monarchy, it came by Saul and David. Blood was also shed in the tabernacle to cleanse and remove the sins of the people. His compassion also included restraint. He did not destroy the people as they deserved. In fact, the psalmist says he often restrained himself. The wrath of God that they experienced was only a small amount of what they actually deserved. Further, he remembered, uh, he knew, uh, we are told, that God knew the, 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 the weakness of the flesh. That his people were momentary and limited like a wind that passes through. And so his faithfulness is presented to us in terms of shepherding care for Israel while they were in the wilderness. Now add on to this is generosity and, and power in giving them the promised land. And contrast his treatment of Israel with how he treated their enemies. He drove out the nations from the promised land. When he, and with Egypt in verses 49 to 50, we have this incredible picture of God's wrath. <clears throat> it says he restrained his wrath against his people. But verse 49 says he let it loose on the Egyptians. His burning anger, his indignation, his distress, his destroying angels. As he made a path of deliverance for his people, God also made a path for his anger and did not spare the enemy, but gave them over to his judgment. And this is where, again, remember the, the, the psalmist wants us to learn from Israel, and so we need to consider how we might go about that. There's a very important passage in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul refers to Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness, and he talks about them. And he notably does two things in that section. First, he interprets what happened to Israel through the person and ministry of Christ. He looks at the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. I'm not going to get into that tonight, but, well, maybe a little bit. But second, um, he says in chapter 10, verse 6, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. That these things took place as examples that we might not repeat the sins of Israel. According to Paul, uh, we can learn from Israel's history. We can learn to avoid idolatry, to avoid sexual immorality, to avoid testing Christ as they tested God, avoid grumbling against God, avoid making excuses for giving in to temptation. These things, Paul says, were written down for our instruction. And so let us then consider what we can learn from Israel by the psalmist's account here. <clears throat> One theologian from the Reformation, a guy wonderfully named Lancelot Andrews, um, uh, you don't meet many Lancelots, so. Uh, but he wrote that uh, what we can learn from Israel's even shallow repentance is that seeking God is worthwhile. 
writes four things about it. He says, we are taught by Israel, and even their shallow repentance, that there is one greater than ourselves and greater than the world that ought to be sought. Secondly, he says that there is some good to be found in seeking him. There is some good that we can find in seeking God. Third, this good that we seek will not be stumbled upon. It must be intentionally sought out as we, as, as we seek God himself. And then fourth, he says what we seek is truly revealed when we are in suffering. And so, uh, and so, we, uh, so even here, generally, we can learn to seek God and that there is a benefit to seeking him. Also, we can learn to avoid shallow repentance. Now, there is some explaining that needs to be done here. <clears throat> For the way to avoid shallow repentance, like Israel, uh, is not to start stressing out and agonizing about our feelings of repentance. Have we repented enough? Are we sad enough? As if our salvation depends upon the depth of our emotions. Shallow repentance is not defined by not having enough emotion in this text. Shallow repentance is addressing the person particularly who refuses again and again to come to the Lord and trust in Jesus Christ. The person who through hardship is brought low, makes many promises to God, and then when things get better, turn their back on him once again. But they do not truly have a sense of their evil, the evil of their sin, nor do they appreciate the remedy that is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. <coughs> True repentance is a saving grace, wherein we are brought by the Holy Spirit to recognition of our sinfulness and turn to Christ in his death and resurrection for our salvation. Yet even as believers, we must confess that there are times when we are guilty of a shallow repentance. When we are disciplined by the Lord. Sometimes we have curated our life so that it is only made up of socially acceptable sins. And we, and we comfort ourselves that even if we have sins, they're not so bad. They're not as bad as the sins of others. We are warned away here by the psalmist for, to, to flee such talk. Not because we can lose our salvation, not because the, the cross and resurrection are weak, but because we may, by such foolishness, grieve the Spirit of God, displease our Father in heaven, and provoke him to discipline us further. <coughs> Finally, this section teaches us that God is worthy of worship for his compassionate love and patience with his people. One scholar noted that the words, that the way that he describes God's compassion is almost like a, a, a worship formula, a doxology in the psalm. As Paul indicates in 1 Corinthians 10, we ought to consider well the behavior of Israel that we would avoid provoking God's jealousy by engaging in flagrant sin. But we are grateful because we also see here God's willingness to forgive. God's willingness to bear patiently with his people even as they stumble along. And we who are in the church, who have on this side of the cross been given a greater revelation of God's mercy and love in Jesus Christ, 
we can, with the help of the Spirit, be moved to a greater faithfulness to God, to sincere repentance, and a greater depth of worship than even Israel was capable of. And so we see in this section a a complex relationship between God and his people, which is marked by Israel's unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness. In the remainder of the psalm, we see God's persevering love for his people. God's persevering love for his people in verses 56 through 72. The psalmist continues the history of Israel, which, um, which ends, uh, actually right here, ends at, a, at, a, at an odd point. It doesn't end at the very end of our Old Testament. He ends at a very certain point. Uh, but, uh, but he covers what we can only call Israel's rejection, verses 55, 56 through 66. Israel's rejection. There's two aspects of this, doing a little wordplay here. Um, because first, we need to recognize that Israel rejected God. Israel rejected God. That is the psalmist's point here. Israel continued to, continued to test God generation after generation. They, they lost his word. They turned away from it, his commands. He says that Israel twisted like a deceitful bow. <clears throat> there we're talking about a weapon of war that malfunctioned. And when the warrior went to go pull it back, the arrow, the, the arrow misfired and the thing sprung out of his hands and fell all over the place. He said that's what Israel's like in their idolatry and disobedience. To reject God is to become a malfunctioning instrument in his hand. And this is specifically tied to their worship of other gods, idolatry. And so Israel rejected God, but God, in turn, rejected Israel. God did what he had previously not done, the psalmist says. He vented his wrath upon Israel. The author says he abandoned his dwelling place at Shiloh, which was the place where they would meet with God prior to um, Jerusalem being the place of worship. It used to be at Shiloh. He delivered his power to captivity and his glory to the hand of the foe. Now, a number of scholars have looked at this and they trace this to the losing the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines uh, um, at, uh, at Saul's death right before David came into his kingship. And that would uh, make sense for because of what he says in verses 67 to 72. Um, and so, um, but, uh, but we want to be careful to note here that he says that in the midst of his wrath against Israel, God eventually awoke as if from sleep and defended them and put their enemies to shame. And so Israel rejects God through their idolatry. God in turn rejects Israel and hands them over to the enemy. But then suddenly in the psalm, hope breaks in through David. So God rejected and did not choose the tent of Joseph in Ephraim, he says. But instead he chose the tribe of Judah. It was through David and later his son Solomon that the temple was built in Jerusalem, patterned after God's heavenly temple. God selected David to be his servant and king. 
but not just a king, a shepherd king. The kingly rule of David was to shepherd the people of God, which as the psalmist says in verse 71, is the inheritance of the Lord. And notice how David's rule is, is described in similar terms of how God cared for Israel in the wilderness, and shepherded them. And here's David now, the, kid, the shepherding king. David did what the people needed. And for all his faults and sins, he shepherded the people of God in faithfulness. In the end, the problem of, of insincere repentance and the idolatry of Israel is resolved not by Israel trying harder and doing better, but by having the right king come to rule them. This leads us to the conclusion. The conclusion that we should, whenever you talk about David in the Old Testament, you're going to end up here, all right? Which is that Christ is the revelation of hope and love. He is the true David. The pattern of rebellion and idolatry only goes on to repeat itself after David dies. We know this in Israel's history. Ultimately, it results in the people being exiled into Assyria and Babylon. Even the return from exile is marked with unfaithfulness and struggle by the people of God. Over the years, the people looked for the son of David who would come to make things right whose rule would bring the the wholeness and salvation they needed. And thus Christ, the New Testament tells us, has come. The true son of David. The true and ultimate king. Christ is the one who redeems our weak repentance. Who rules over us. And guards us and guides us into the fullness of the kingdom of God. Now, the history of Israel is filled with sin and unfaithfulness to God. But we must also note, so is the history of the church. One author wrote that this psalm reminds us that the Lord remains faithful to bless his people even when they are unfaithful to him. That is a precious promise for us to hold as God's people, as those who say, I readily admit my own times of unfaithfulness, my own weak repentance, my own times where I've cherished sin instead of submitting to holiness. But we we must never forget why God is faithful to us. That God is faithful to us because, not because we're great at repenting, but because Jesus Christ is our King. And all who seek salvation in him will be satisfied. And I want to conclude tonight where the Apostle Paul begins his letter in 1 Corinthians. Speaking to a church that has lots of sin. That has its own very serious faithfulness problems. And let us hear the Apostle and how he addresses them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. 
that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. (coughs) We need to take those words as encouragement as God's people to remember that even in our weakness, even in our frailty, that it is our Lord Jesus Christ, those words there at the end, who will sustain you to the end. That God is faithful even when we have been faithless. And that it was by Jesus that we were, by his grace, by his mercy and his spirit, that we are called into the fellowship of faith, the fellowship of believers. So let's give thanks to our King, Jesus, and trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. That in Jesus we have a true king who is our blessed, blessed God. Our blessed Savior. God in the flesh. Come in fulfillment of the promises and prophecies concerning David. Lord, we pray that we would not hide from the repentance that is needed as your people. That we would not cower in the corner waiting for lightning bolts that shall never come but rather that we would come to our heavenly father in submission and and even with trembling but expecting mercy and goodness on account of your son Jesus Christ and father may you lead us in holiness and faithfulness until that day when you remove every every bit of corruption from our beings that we may worship you and love you fully as you deserve and for which we were called. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand now and sing together our last song tonight, hymn 199, Only Trust Him.